This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, September 25th, 2020. I'm James Heelan from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. We will be talking about Artemis, the NASA-led program to send humans back to the moon and onto Mars. Joining me from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration is Chief Scientist Dr. Jim Green. Welcome, Jim, and thanks for being here. Thanks, James, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. We're really glad to have you. As many of you know, these missions require private sector assistance and services. So we're also happy to welcome two NASA partners today. First, let me welcome Dr. Amy Fagan. Amy is an Associate Professor of Geology at Western Carolina University and Chair of the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, or LEAG. Hello, and thanks for joining us today, Amy. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. And we have Dr. Elizabeth Frank. Elizabeth is an Applied Planetary Scientist at First Mode and Chair of the LEAG Commercial Advisory Board. Welcome to Fed Talk, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. In a few moments, we'll hear more from each of our guests about their work in this space, or should I say outer space and break down why NASA is leading the Artemis program. In the second segment of our show, we'll learn more about the Artemis missions and the different partners working together to take us to the moon and beyond. After that, we'll discuss the unique benefits of solar exploration and learn why partners are eager to work with NASA on these missions. And finally, we will close our show with a discussion on the personnel needed for Artemis to succeed and the immediate next steps towards sending the first humans to Mars. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by FedPoint. FedPoint administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. To learn more, visit them today at fedpointusa.com. Now let's get to know our guests. First, we have Jim Green. Thanks again, Jim, for being here. You are NASA's Chief Scientist. Please tell our listeners a little bit about your work and your involvement in Artemis. Thank you so much, James. Uh, I've been a NASA employee for about uh, 40 years and have been involved in many, many missions. But I have to tell you, I am so excited about what we call going forward to the moon. You know, I, ha- I watched the original Apollo missions and they were just tremendously exciting, you know, on my black and white TV where I had to move the rabbit ears. But we're moving into a new era of exploration beyond low Earth orbit. And Artemis is just the start of it. Now, we look at Artemis as a phased program, you know, and so we're going to talk primarily today about Artemis Phase 1. Now, this has got three major missions using the SLS and the Orion capsule, and then a whole suite of uh, robotic scientific measurements that we want to make with a variety of spacecraft and commercial partners and then a gateway, you know, sort of like a mini space station orbiting the moon. And that's Artemis uh, phase one. 
And that phase one will end with the Artemis III uh, launch and landing of two astronauts on the south pole of the moon, our first woman and uh, perhaps our second woman, but our first woman and the, the next man on the surface of the moon in the south pole. Pretty exciting. That's fantastic. And we're also glad to have with us Amy Fagan as part of this conversation. Congratulations, Amy. I understand you recently became chair of the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, or we're going to call it League, uh, from here forward. Tell us about yourself and League's involvement in Artemis. Thanks, James. Sure. Uh, so yes, as, actually, as of last week, I became the chair of the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group. And since that's such a mouthful, we call it League. Uh, so League is an interesting organization because it was founded in, in 2004 to support NASA in providing analysis of, of various different issues, so scientific, technical, operational issues that are going to help support lunar exploration. And so that's the main, main purpose of LEAGUE. But, you know, a lot of planetary science is uh, narrow in focus. And so we have our, our own little niches that, that we fill. For example, I'm, I'm a samples person. So a lot of the work that I've done has been looking at the chemical composition of Apollo samples and meteorites from the moon. But what's great about League is that it's not just people who do the same research that I do. Uh, we have planetary scientists. We have life scientists because, you know, we're, we're always looking for life in other places in the solar system. And the astronauts are going to go back to the moon. So we need to have people who are engaged in lunar exploration that are also interested in life science. We've got engineers. We've got civil servants who work for NASA, we've got people in academia, and we've got the commercial sector. So it's a, it's a great group of, of people that brings in a, a diversity of backgrounds in terms of uh, what, what their experiences are, how they view things. One thing that we talk a lot about as scientists is that scientists and engineers talk different languages. And you need to have both of them in the room when we're working towards a common goal of going forward to the moon, as, as Jim put it. Great, I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, we also have Elizabeth Frank. Elizabeth, you are chair of League's Commercial Advisory Board. The depth and breadth of the commercial space sector may be new to many of our listeners. So can you tell us about how you got into this growing market sector and what kind of work League's Commercial Advisory Board does? Sure. So um, in brief, my own background is that of a planetary scientist. I have a PhD in planetary geochemistry. Um, I previously worked on a NASA mission, but then I changed tack. And I'm working in the commercial space sector for the past four and a half or so years, first at Planetary Resources, the asteroid mining company, um, and now at First Mode, which is an engineering consultancy that works in space and mining primarily. Um, and so the perspective I bring to the role of, of cab chair is someone who understands the needs of planetary scientists and lunar scientists in particular in this case, um, but also the context in which the commercial space sector works. And so I look forward to bringing that perspective to try and better integrate these communities who ultimately have the same goal of exploring the moon. And so we've got folks on the cab who um, have been involved for a few years. The cab was first created in 2015 and formally or originally um, of folks who were pursuing the Google Lunar X Prize. And since then, we've grown to over 40 members, um, uh, 40 organizations with over 40, sorry, over 60 members. Um, and so I look forward to um, figuring out how to take the diversity of experiences and focuses that the, the members have 
and funneling that into the Artemis program. Well, with the three of you, we have a wonderful um, wide variety of perspectives to talk about Artemis. Of course, Artemis now comes about 60 years after the Apollo program first brought us to the moon. Apollo, uh, god of the sun. In Greek mythology, Artemis was his twin sister and goddess of the moon. So naming seems appropriate. Now, Jim, can you tell us why is NASA leading the program um, and this human effort to go back to the moon? Why is it a federal agency that's leading the effort? Well, as you know, NASA's worked really hard with a number of commercial uh, companies to get them up and operational uh, in terms of um, uh, supplying space stations uh, with astronauts and supplies. This enables uh, NASA to then look beyond low Earth orbit, to then move out into the solar system. And of course, we'd love uh, to be able to uh, go to Mars uh, you can't just go right away. You really have to learn to live and work on a planetary surface. And the moon is that close planetary surface that we can get to. And in fact, there's many things that we want to do on the moon, not only in studying the moon in its own right, scientifically, but also learn to be able to use the resources that are there uh, to provide a sustainable environment for long periods of stays. Now, the Apollo program, you know, when they went to the moon, it was um, uh, getting down on the surface. Um, uh, for uh, Apollo 11, it was less than a day. For Apollo 17, it was uh, like three days. And, and our plan for Artemis 3, which will be our mission with our next two people, getting down to the South Pole, will be a stay for about a week. And I think that's just the start of our ability to stay on the surface doing a variety of things for longer periods of time. And we would do that as we get into the second half of this next decade, after 2024, when we do have that landing for uh, uh, Art the next phase of Artemis, Artemis II, with many other launches. Now, as we learn to live and work on that surface, we will then plan on going to Mars after that. I think that sets us up for an excellent next segment, but we're on our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. When we come back, we will continue our discussion about the Artemis program. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are here with Dr. Jim Green from NASA, Dr. Amy Fagan, League Chair, and Dr. Elizabeth Frank, Chair of the League Commercial Advisory Board. We're talking about the Artemis program. Jim, when we left off, you were talking to us about the mission's objective of landing the first woman and next man on the moon by 2024. What are some of the long-term goals of the program in terms of sustainability? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, instead of these short stays that Apollo did, we're really looking forward to a more sustainable, long-term commitment of exploring the moon uh, scientifically and, and utilizing its resources. Uh, in, a sustainable program, of course, has got to have the backing 
of uh, the administration and Congress and, of course, the American people. And so a stable uh, funding is uh, really critical for us to be able to keep the momentum going. And uh, uh, I'm very proud uh, to say uh, uh, how appreciative we are of Congress in a very bipartisan way, working uh, towards um, uh, providing NASA the funding to indeed move forward and do these fantastic things. Another part of uh, sustainability, as I mentioned, is the ability to stay for longer periods of time. Now, with that, that means we're going to have to be able to take equipment or things with us that will extract resources on the moon. And there's some spectacular resources in the South Pole that scientifically we've been able to uncover with a variety of our orbiters uh, that is really wonderful, uh, such as water. We believe that in these permanently shadowed regions, there's a significant amount of water. And then finally, we want to be able to live and work on a planetary surface. The moon is that first surface such that we can do it in a very autonomous way as much as possible. That will be necessary for us to practice those things when the long range plan is to go to Mars and communication back and forth on to Mars is not only very long, but can be problematic in terms of supplying uh, equipment and things to, to Mars. So we have to learn to be sustainable and autonomous on the surface. Amy, I saw in our video conference, you were nodding along. Do you have um, something you can add to Jim's commentary? You know, I, I think Jim really hit the nail on the head, you know, and one of these is, is, is resources and space resources. And, and that really kind of uh, ties us into some of the international work that um, that can be done. I mean, there we're not the only people who are interested in going forward to the moon. Humanity as a whole has always been interested in exploring, and we're we're not alone in that. So one of the one of the ways that Artemis is going to be successful as as a program is by something called the Artemis Accords. And the Artemis Accords is a is a series of agreements that um, that are going to take place for other countries or and other um, national entities that are going to be working with us to get forward to the moon, to go, to go there, to explore, um, and to learn about the whole solar system. One of the great things about going to the moon is that it's not just learning about the moon. It's, it's learning about the inner solar system and some of the history that it has been erased from the surface of earth because we have weather, we have plate tectonics, things like that. Uh, but as part of the Artemis Accords, Space Resources is one of those entities that, that is covered. Um, but a really large portion of the Artemis Accords is also just peaceful activities and not having conflict. So avoiding conflict seems like a strange thing to talk about when you're going to the moon. But if we want to be successful in going to the moon and going to other places in the solar system, then we have a few things that we have to make sure happen. So we need to know where other countries are gonna be placing experiments, for example, so that we don't mess up their results and, and vice versa. Um, being very transparent with where we're going and when we're going is, is important and also for other countries that are gonna be partnering with us. And since we're sending astronauts, another part of that is making sure that we have emergency assistance for astronauts. And a lot of the, components that are in the Artemis Accords are actually based in the Outer Space 
treaty from 1967. So this is not a new idea. Um, but one thing that I think is important for us to, to remember is that we have the International Space Station. And that's a great example of how humanity has explored outer space and worked together that has transcended politics and international differences. And that has proven that we can work to create a better place for all of humanity without having to squabble. And the Artemis Accords is really kind of working towards that, but on, on the moon, which is a cool thing to do. Now, I understand the Artemis Accords are bilateral agreements. Is that right? That's correct. And do we currently have any agreements signed with any international partners? Uh, Jim, can you answer that one? I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, there are a number of countries that already have um, uh, made the commitment that they would sign the Artemis Accords. Um, in fact, uh, there's meetings going on um, all the time uh, with international partners. And I think we'll see many more uh, sign up to the ideas of those principles of how we can work together, peaceful uses, uh, uh, share resources, uh, and be transparent in what we do. And does NASA work directly with its international partners to enter into these agreements? Or does NASA work with other federal agencies in cooperative effort? Ah, the Artemis Accords actually is uh, first uh, derived from an interaction within the federal government, within uh, talking with the administration, with many of the other um, agencies uh, to really help define uh, key elements. You know, one of the elements of the uh, Artemis Accords is about uh, orbital debris and mm -hmm. spacecraft disposal. It's all about being uh, good stewards of space. You know, these are things that um, commerce is interested in as they, as they, um, uh, as an example. Uh, so uh, indeed, that's how it starts. And then, and then now we're working with the international community. And I understand NASA isn't working with just the international community, but also with the commercial sector. Elizabeth, what kind of commentary can you give us on um, these notions of sustainability and, and agreements for long-term success of the Artemis program? Sure. So I'd like to underscore Amy's point that the Artemis records are really um, critical for NASA and the U.S. to set tone about how we're going to approach these activities on the moon. Um, looking back to Apollo, that was more uh, of an adversarial context because we were in the middle of the Cold War and so that resulted in the space race. But now we're going more for the International Space Station um, approach as opposed to a space race. Um, so that's a big difference, I think, from now versus Apollo. But a similarity um, from, uh, for the Artemis program versus uh, the Apollo program is that Apollo included um, over 300,000 individuals, which included uh, 200, uh, sorry, 20,000 contractors and 200 universities across 80 countries. And so um, as, uh, Jim, I know you're a history buff. That reference is A Secret of Apollo by Stephen Johnson. Um, so go ahead and read that later. Um, but the point there is that uh, there were 20,000 contractors. And so the commercial sector has always played a critical role in helping NASA um, and its international partners explore the solar system. And so from my perspective as a planetary scientist in the commercial space sector, I see two different aspects of sustainability. The first is sustainability for businesses. Like, are there follow-on opportunities throughout the Artemis program for NASA to capitalize on its investments in these companies who are building up their internal 
um, infrastructure and skills and knowledge bases. And so how can NASA continue to benefit from that over time throughout the duration of the Apollo program and even looking past uh, Artemis program and even looking into different programs across the agency. And the second I think is interesting um, and a bit more complicated because it's just, it's beyond NASA, it's a bigger picture. It's more of an economics question which is, is there a market outside of the US government or other governments? And I think as Artemis proceeds, we'll find out what the answer to that is. Well, isn't Elon Musk um, an individual who's set a long-term goal to travel to Mars in the commercial sector without government? Um, It's true, but he's using his own money to do so, (laughs) right? So uh, there's a question of who the customer is. Um, Is it a sustainable approach, um, venture-backed capital? The idea if in venture-backed companies is that investors uh, pool their resources and with the hope of seeing return on their investments later on um, as the particular activities of a company proceed. Um, and so you can only dump money into an effort for so long before, uh, without seeing any ROI before people are going to be like, okay, maybe it's time to try something else. This approach isn't working. So whether that's a sustainable approach, um, I, I'm not so sure. So would, would you say that, go ahead, Jim. Okay. Uh, If I may add to that, of course, um, uh, indeed, uh, the concept of working with commercial partners uh, has changed significantly in terms of instead of having them under contract, we want to be able to create a partnership uh, on an equal basis. We want them to have a significant autonomy in how they perform their tasks and and, uh, satisfying their own goals, for instance. Relative to uh, Elon, of course, um, uh, Elon's doing fantastic with SpaceX, uh, uh, providing uh, launches for us, not only supplying station, but getting uh, astronauts now up and back uh, from space station. And indeed, the discussion has been uh, uh, Elon's desire to go to Mars. How can we do that? We have a Space Act agreement with Elon. All right where we will help him with the navigation. In other words, we can get him to the top of the atmosphere. It'll be up to him to get to the surface safely. Well, let's um, talk about some of the nuts and bolts of these, these next steps, the series of Artemis missions. I understand, Jim, from your earlier comments, there's multiple phases. And first, I understand there's phase one. Can you tell us about the details of phase one? I understand there's robotic missions underlying it. Um, what we can expect to see from Artemis in the near future? Well, because phase one has not only human missions, but also robotic missions, uh, let me uh, uh, dwell first on the human missions. And um, uh, we'll have Amy and Elizabeth talk about uh, the the robotic science missions, which I'm also excited about too, of course. Well, phase one Artemis actually has three main missions associated with it for human activities. And this is where we're going to use the Orion capsule and the space launch system. Uh, There'll be three major launches with that configuration. The first one we call Artemis One. Uh, Our plan is to execute that, uh, if all goes well, by the end of next year, the end of 2021. Uh, Artemis One will indeed uh, be uncrewed, but go to the moon and come back and land. And we will be able, with that one mission, to really shake out all the problems and identify, um, of course, um, our uh, plans and lessons learned 
that we would then will apply for Artemis II. And Artemis II then will be uh, the, the next mission uh, that will do a similar rendezvous uh, with the moon. However, it will be crewed. We'll have astronauts in it. And then Artemis III, uh, which we want to do by uh, the end of 2024, will be uh, then the, the crew uh, with two of our at, at, uh, astronauts making it all the way down to the surface. Great. That sets us up for our next segment. We're going to stop here for our second break. We will continue our discussion about the Artemis program. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of our show about the Artemis program, where we will dive into the real high value of missions to the moon. Amy, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, You're chair of the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group, or as we've said, LEAGUE. I know you have a lot to say about the scientific value of going back to the moon, despite the fact we've been there already. What can you say about that? Oh, James, that's a very simple question with a very complex and long response. So I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can. I could go on all day. Uh, you know, one of the things that people need to realize is, yes, we have been with humans to the moon uh, with the Apollo missions, but they were all in the equatorial region on the near side, the side that we see when we look up at the night sky. And, you know, it really only represents one very small portion of the moon. It would be like going to Yellowstone National Park and saying, okay, I've been to Yellowstone. I've picked up a rock. I know everything there is to know about that volcanic system and everything there is to know about the western portion of the United States and the northern hemisphere of Earth. It's, it's just not the same. And with Artemis, we're planning on going to the South Polar region. It's a completely different location. So think about going to Yellowstone and saying, oh, I know everything there is about Earth. And then you come back you know, later and go to the South Pole of Earth and say, oh, well, that's a little different. You know, so, so there's <laughs> geology is a, is a really great tool to learn about how these different bodies formed, how they have evolved. And on the moon, what's great is that we don't have plate tectonics on the moon like we have here on Earth. So on Earth, any of the past history of objects hitting the Earth over time has been erased by, you know, weathering and the plates on the surface of the Earth moving around. You know, this is why we have earthquakes. This is why we have uh, certain volcanic structures is because of plate tectonics. And it erases that signature. So when we go to the moon, not only are we learning about how the moon formed, 
but we're also learning about what has happened in the inner solar system over time. We can collect samples of rocks from the moon, and we have, we've obviously done this, and we can identify tiny little micrometeorites in those samples and get an understanding of what sort of objects were hitting the moon at any given period of time. Well, anything that was hitting the moon was hitting Earth. In fact, more of them were hitting Earth. <laughs> you know, if we look at the whole scale of the solar system, Earth and the moon are almost in the same spot. Now, to us as humans, the moon seems very, very far away. But if you look at the whole scale of the solar system, they're practically on top of each other. So the, the moon is great because it's only a few days away and we can travel there and learn about the inner solar system, learn about Earth. You know, and that's a, that's a great tool to have that we can't learn about the early time periods of Earth on our own planet as we can on the moon. Now, in terms of science of the moon, the South Polar region is completely different. We have areas that are in uh, permanent shadow, and that's a pretty different environment than what we have on the near side. There's evidence that we have volatiles trapped in, in the regolith in the surface of the moon that we can use as resources to travel elsewhere in the solar system. So there is a rover that is going to be launched called Viper, which is Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover. Viper is a little bit easier to say. And that's going to be giving us some information about what exactly are we working with. Again, we've never been to the South Pole. There's a lot to learn about the evolution of the moon and Earth and the whole inner solar system by going to the moon and by going to the South Pole. Even you know, radio astronomy, for example, that's something that people don't usually think about with the moon, but you can do radio astronomy in a radio quiet area on the moon that you can't do as well here on Earth. So there's a lot of different things that we can do on the moon to learn about the moon and other places in the solar system. Uh, but some of that comes with technology. Viper is just part of it. Uh, and some of that technology is coming from commercial partners. It's not just coming from NASA. So Elizabeth, is there uh, any sort of commercial partnerships that, that you wanted to bring in here about what's helping us to learn about the moon? Yeah, I think NASA's done a great job of providing opportunities for the commercial space sector to get involved. Uh, so for example, the uh, Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, I believe is gonna be helping deliver the Viper rover to the South Pole. Um, and it's a way to accelerate um, involvement uh, of the commercial space sector and uh, help NASA achieve its really ambitious and exciting timelines um, for the Artemis program. Um, for first mode itself, so we are very excited. Uh, our backgrounds um, are basically in aerospace. We use the principles and practices of space systems engineering and apply it to problems in and beyond Earth. So we are currently supporting uh, the Psyche mission, for example, to build some hardware um, in support of this mission that's going to go visit an asteroid. Um, but we also solve some tough, gnarly problems here on Earth in the mining sector. Uh, another project that we have that is quite different from Psyche is retrofitting a hydrogen haul truck to run off of hydrogen fuel cells as opposed to gasoline and try and um, clean up the mining industry essentially. And so common themes that we see in our projects are mobility um, and extreme environments. And to that end, we were thrilled to see the lunar terrain vehicle um, opportunity come up for the Artemis program. Um, that's basically uh, a rover that's analogous to the lunar roving vehicle uh, for the Apollo program that's also known as the moon buggy. So this is basically the new, new moon buggy. Um, we respond to that opportunity and are in the process of working on a proposal 
um, in, in preparation for the request for proposal. We've had great talks with folks in NASA headquarters. Um, so that's just one example of the way that the commercial space community can support the activities of the Artemis program and, and support um, both the science side of things uh, as well as the exploration. Elizabeth, I wanted to add that, you know, another part of what you said is that science and exploration are so intertwined. You know, going to the South Pole of the Moon to learn science about the moon is, is going to help us understand the resources that are there. And those resources are going to help us to explore other places in, in the solar system, to, to go to Mars, to, to send astronauts into other locations, that we need those resources and to kind of separate us a little bit from having to, continuing, to continue to resupply from Earth that if we can get those resources from the moon, then that's a great opportunity. From a NASA's perspective, you know, we're really excited about uh, the commercial payload services uh, activity because um, uh, they're going to the moon. We want to go with them. Uh, we have uh, a number of experiments, uh, as many as 14 experiments coming up on one of the missions that will uh, go. In fact, uh, we, we expect two flights from the commercial sector in 2021. So this next year will be really exciting. The three of you raise excellent points. And I'm thinking, you know, not only are we now going to back to a new location on the moon um, 60 years later, but we're also bringing 60 years um, of more advanced technology to the moon to conduct uh, up-to-date science. Jim, can you talk to us about the kinds of instruments that will be brought to the moon and what kind of science it will do that's new and groundbreaking? Uh, that, that question actually is better for Amy. Uh, I can talk about some of the ISRU and some of the technologies, but we should leverage their expertise while we got them. <laughs> oh yeah, James, I'll, I'll go ahead and try and tackle a little bit. So you're basically asking, what are we gonna do when we go back? And that's being developed right now. Uh, the Artemis III uh, science definition team is going on right now. They have already uh, gotten feedback from the community in the series of white papers and town hall that was held actually just last week. And the science definition team is, is meeting right now. I'm a consultant for the science definition team. So actually just before we recorded this, uh, I was in a meeting with that. So it's really exciting that we are deciding right now what the top science priorities are to to accomplish when we go to the moon with humans on Artemis 3. And let me tell you, it's very exciting, but it's also a little terrifying. You're having to boil down pages and pages and pages of multiple documents of, here's all the great things that we can do on the moon, and you have to be prioritizing them. And of course, everybody wants to do everything. Uh, and that's, that's a hard thing to do, but, uh, but that is going on right now and that report will, will come out um, in the next couple months. So we'll have a better idea of what those science objectives are gonna be for Artemis III actually very, very soon. Uh, but some of that is gonna be reliant on the architecture on, and on the, the technology of what's available um, and, and how that plan unfolds. So is, is the team considering objectives that are um, feasible with existing technology, or is it looking a little beyond present technology to push the boundaries um, for government and the commercial sector to, to do more in terms sure, of capability? That's a really good question. So a lot of what we're doing is actually working with uh, documents that have already been made over the past few years of what the main science goals are or objectives are that we want to be able to achieve. 
Um, but you know, we're also being realistic with it. So if we are, if we're having to prioritize what's going to happen um, as the top science priority for Artemis three, it has to be something that's at least you know somewhat achievable. We're not going to be doing a beam me up, Scotty sort of uh, science objective that's going to have to rely on technology that just doesn't exist yet. However, um, as we are going through that we are outlining and identifying things of, okay, you know, if this is gonna end up being one of our top priorities, it's going to require maybe a slight tweak or a recommendation in the architecture. And we're trying to work out whether that is, um, is gonna be achievable or, or not. You know, this is happening very, very soon. You know, it's a pretty short uh, turnaround time. And Jim can probably talk a little bit more about that timeline of, you know, 2024 is just around the corner. Just around the corner. But uh, let me tell you, one of the more fundamental things that will change our view of the origin and evolution of the Earth-Moon system is really bringing back samples. You know, the Apollo samples, we're still reaping the benefits of analyzing those. So at the very least, our astronauts are going to be in new and exciting areas. These areas from orbit we see have uh, a, a spectrum that tells us they're iron rich in some cases. And that means there could be some platinum group metals. Uh, that means they, they, their mineralogy is different than in other locations. And so consequently, uh, the, the rock record that they will bring back will be tremendously important for us to understand what's happened to that South Polar region. I'm a sample science person, so I'm always game for, let's bring back as many samples as we possibly can. But one of the interesting things for the South Polar region is, you know, there are frozen deposits. And so that is something that, you know, is being worked through right now. Uh, people are trying to determine how is it that we can bring deposits back? Do we analyze them maybe on the surface to determine their makeup a little bit to then feed forward to the next landing of, okay, now we have a pretty good idea of how to transport these samples back to Earth. So there's this balance that we have to have between analyzing things in situ on the surface of the moon and bringing them back to have the really high resolution analyses that are gonna tell us some really fantastic things. We get a lot of information from in situ analysis, but even better if they're back here on Earth and I agree, those samples are the gift that keeps on giving. Those Apollo samples are still telling us new things every year. Yeah, in terms of uh, getting some of those um, uh, icy, icy samples back, you know, we, we, we can dream of the cores that we want to make. When we go to the Antarctica or, you know, the, the North Pole or Greenland and, and get ice cores, we see how the weather and, and, and many other things have affected this planet and the record is right there. Same thing we will get from the moon's record in these permanently shadowed regions. Ice cores will tell us about the contribution of comets and asteroids and volatiles. Perhaps the moon, as it was outgassing and forming, had a, a lunar atmosphere. Some of that may be also mixed in there. Uh, and then uh, the, the water cycle that we're currently seeing where micrometeors are hitting the moon and liberating water in, in the permanently shadowed regions or cold traps there, bringing that resource into the permanently shadowed regions. Really exciting stuff. Well, it sounds like we're getting down to the nitty gritty of people that we need to do all of this uh, 
this work once we get to the moon and once samples are brought back. So we're gonna stop here for our final break and when we return, we will wrap up this discussion with Jim, Amy, and Elizabeth. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the show covering NASA's Artemis program. Before the break, we were talking about going to the moon's south pole, extracting cores and bringing them back to Earth to do further examination. So Jim, I'd like to ask you, what kind of skills and abilities does NASA and its partners need to obtain those cores and to bring them back and do the science? And how are we gonna get those skills and abilities? Well, I can tell you this right now, we don't have them. I can't walk into one of the centers and say, uh, who, who, who does mining for NASA? We, we don't do that. We don't have that expertise. And so by learning to live and work off the land now brings in a whole new set of skills that we're going to need. You know, as I, as I mentioned, I, I desperately want to go into those permanently shadowed areas in core down into that regolith, into that ice, and then and then take a look at that. That's the history of the moon like we've never seen it before. I don't know how to do that, but there are people with those kind of skills out in the commercial sector. Elizabeth, you know where they are. How can we get them? Yeah, there's several members of the CAB um, who represent mining companies, and actually First Mode ourselves, we work directly with the mining industry. So um, I've seen firsthand the value that their perspective would bring to a program like Artemis. Um, For example, they work in extreme environments, um, for example, like underground, and uh, you have to think about things like maintenance and durability of equipment, and certainly on the moon, the regolith is a very, very harsh environment um, itself because the, the, the regolith grains are so sharp that they can degrade equipment very quickly. And so I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from other sectors, including the mining industry, um, and draw upon their um, long period of expertise in figuring out how to, how to um, operate in such extreme conditions. Uh, so for example, the mining industry uh, has been around for a long time. Actually, the first evidence of mining activity is over 42,000 years old. And so humans have been mining for a long time. And so even beyond the mining industry, I think it's important to look to other sectors and other disciplines who have parallel areas of expertise who can solve both the infrastructural challenges that we're going to encounter as we think about these big picture projects within Artemis, um, as well as just the general exploration that we're going to do. Maybe Amy, uh, so you have a lot of students that you teach as a professor, and I bet they have all sorts of backgrounds. What kind of students approach you to learn about opportunities to work in space? Sure. It's, it's everybody. I have students who are um, interior design, for example, you know, and if you think about the, the spacecrafts, you know, somebody had to design how the seats are going to go and where the buttons are going to go. And, and in Apollo and, and Gemini and Mercury, you know, the astronauts helped out with that a little bit by saying, okay, things need to be moved, you know, so they can better, better reach it. But, you know, interior design is something that could be incorporated in with Artemis. Um, 
you know, even costume designers, um, Jim, didn't you say it, say at some point that, you know, that was involved with making the, the spacesuits? Well, yeah, in fact, uh, you know, that next generation spacesuit we're working on right now is just a real spectacular capability. It's called the XEMU, and uh, it will uh, allow us to have the flexibility that we didn't have uh, on the moon. It also has to, you know, uh, uh, take into account the dust that we expect to cling on. And, and then how do you get rid of that? And the dust on on the moon is jagged, so you don't want to end up ingesting it. So there's all kinds of capabilities and research we need to be able to do in, uh, in those areas. But going back to the mining in particular, it's, it's not just that ice core. You know, we're going to be bringing 3D printers with us. You know, uh, the concept of having capability that, that allows us to be uh, to operate autonomously away from Earth for long periods of time mean that we're going to have to maintain all kinds of equipment. That means we're going to have to manufacture parts that break down, that are critical. Well, 3D printing is that technology. And, and although we play around with it a little bit, you know, there's experts that will really be able to tell us the kind of resources we need to bring into those 3D systems that then enable us to create the parts we need. So indeed, uh, the mineralogy of the area, the, the, you know, the, the, the samples will tell us uh, what kind of uh, uh, iron, nickel, platinum group metals, what, what, what's available that we can bring in and then use in these kind of processes. Well, Jim, you've you really talked about some interesting things there in terms of using and 3D printing. You know, if we look around us, everything that we have around us has been extracted from Earth. And at some point in time, it will, it will be like that in other places in the solar system. We need to extract things and, and use them. You know, the, the wood that our buildings are made out of or the concrete or the asphalt road, everything has been extracted and manipulated in some way. And so, you know, we, we need to have people that, that have knowledge of how to manipulate different materials. Jim, you also mentioned, you know, long-term duration. You know, we've all gotten a little bit more familiar with what isolation does to people <laughs> in terms of, you know, the global pandemic. But, you know, there are, there are people who study the psychological effects. And, you know, if we're going to be sending humans places where there's going to be isolation or, um, you know, small environments, then we need to know how those people are going to react. Uh, and some of that is also training the astronauts. And even in the Apollo days, you know, there was a lot of training that, that they did in different circumstances. They also had geology training. So they took them out to teach them how to pick up samples and, and spot a, a really cool sample of something that was worthy of being collected. In fact, one of the astronauts actually was a geologist, uh, Jack Schmidt from Apollo 17. He's the, he's the only geologist to have been to the moon, but I know many more who would like to go. Not me. You are not strapping my butt to a rocket. I'm not doing that. But um, there's there's a lot of expertise in terms of collection techniques. And you know, if we're going to a polar region, we probably need somebody who has expertise in working in Antarctica and what that's right. what those techniques are are like. And that's something that we didn't have um, as much. I, I don't think, Jim, did we have any any training like that for the Apollo astronauts? 
Uh, yeah, actually, I believe they did visit um, uh, some really cold and austere places okay. uh, in training, perhaps the dry valleys. I'm not quite sure about that. But but indeed, as you point out, extreme temperatures are going to be, you know, the the rule on the moon, you know, with um, uh, the the nighttime, although the southern hemisphere, we can get to places where we'll see the sun mostly. Uh, uh, there'll be permanently shadowed regions we're going to expect to go into for periods of time. And so that means what kind of lubricants do we need? How do you, how do you create mobility in systems that have to operate at tremendously low temperatures or, you know, out in the sun where it can get incredibly hot also. So just a whole variety of technologies that, that we know we need, but, it, but uh, you know, a lot of those skills are, are in industry. Uh, and they're working on a variety of, uh, you know, common products that that uh, that that we use here uh, uh, on Earth. But we'll have to we'll have to tap that expertise going to the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, Amy mentioned um, the research going into the dynamics of putting people into um, an interplanetary vehicle. Uh, certainly, you know, a lot of our listeners work for federal agencies, and these are very highly regulated workplaces. But of course, there's only so much regulation you can do in a workplace like, um, you know, a, a small vessel traveling to the moon or traveling further, further to Mars. And I know there's lots of work that astronauts have to do to prepare themselves um, just to make these trips to the International Space Station. Jim, can you tell us about some of that training and how they prepare for the isolation um, and, and how they work to maintain civility and, <laughs> and professionalism when they're in that kind of environment and how that um, maybe is being adapted or expanded upon for these future longer term missions. So uh, I haven't been involved directly in that area, but I can tell you uh, that NASA has really um, extended itself uh, in terms of its ability to um, understand individual personalities and capabilities, test them, and determine uh, the viability of, um, of these people working together. You know, NASA knows how to build teams. Uh, you know, going to the moon or Mars or, or even space station, it's always a team effort. Uh, the ability to have certain skills um, and, the, and the overlap of those skills uh, the ability to uh, understand and and um, uh, be a, a compatriot, you know, and and uh, uh, really have the empathy that's needed to to uh, take those different perspectives. Because in many cases, those teams are going to be international. Mm-hmm. You look at you look at the international makeup on space station. You know, uh, there's there, there's different major changes in the in cultures. The cultural differences are huge, and and so so NASA has worked hard, has plenty of experience in in being able to bring those kind of things together and make them work, as they've demonstrated on space station. They'll begin using some of those same concepts as they move forward uh, with the crews uh, for, uh, Artemis phase one and phase two, and then on to, uh, on to Mars. Right. Even just communication, you know, you need to be able to have some sort of standard for communication, um, and, and being able to work with the hardware, but also being able to work with the other humans 
that are on the on the mission with you. You know, Elizabeth, coming from the commercial sector, can you tell us about how the relationships between contractors and NASA are different in Artemis compared to how they were, for example, in Apollo? Sure. I think this uh, relationship is typified by programs like CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, where NASA is trying to accelerate their timelines compared to normal mission timelines um, to achieve their um, really exciting uh, uh, timelines that they have in mind for, for Artemis. Um, and in so doing, they're basically pushing um, more of the ownership and the project management onto the contractor um, in that context. And so that pushes risk um, to the commercial provider and also incentivizes them to um, be more efficient in their execution of the project. Um, and it's a bit of a different dynamic from how NASA usually does things, but I think it's very exciting. And it's also very empowering for the, the commercial providers to be able to um, make decisions more rapidly and uh, in pursuit of the goals that NASA is trying to set out um, while, yeah, just bringing, bringing their A game, right. And, and trying to uh, do what they do best um, in the context of, of going to the moon. Um, so I think it's really, really exciting. And um, I, I hope that, that the COPS program and other programs like it across NASA um, demonstrate a new novel contracting approach that we can um, share across the agency. And um, it can basically allow uh, more commercial providers to be involved and allow NASA to do more solar system exploration, like not just to the moon, but there's so many exciting places in the solar system to go. Um, and if we can get more shots on goal in the, the term of uh, Jim Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, um, I think that's a great um, opportunity for everyone. Um, because at the end of the day, um, there's so much exciting science to do across the solar system that if um, these novel contracting vehicles can allow us to do it, I think it's a win for everyone. So that's fantastic. Thanks, Elizabeth. It sounds like the Artemis program is helping the federal government push all sorts of boundaries. That's all the time we have. I appreciate all three of you being here today. Jim, Amy, Elizabeth, really appreciate your time and perspective. Thanks to all of you listeners for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.